Hi, Jeff here from the University of Kentucky. Ciao, I'm Kristen from the University of Minnesota. Salut, this is Tina from the University of Colorado. And alam, greetings. This is Stuart from the University of Mississippi. Welcome to Pharmacy Fika. A podcast for pharmacy educators by pharmacy educators. Where we discuss teaching and learning, scholarship, and academic life. In Sweden, a fika is a coffee break, but it's much more than that. It's a state of mind and attitude. It's all about slowing down. And finding time for friends and colleagues. While you sip a beverage and enjoy a little something nice to eat. So join us. Hey, everybody. I'm glad we're here today joining each other. I brought my Swedish fish, as you can see, although those of you listening at home, you can't see them. But I'm on Swedish fish and a little cup of hot tea. Um, Jeff, I suspect you didn't bring anything. I have my water. (laughs) Very good. The healthiest among us, reminding us to keep hydrated. That's right. So, Tina, what would you bring? I brought a delicious key lime pie because um, I'm a new resident of Colorado and I'm learning to deal with cold. And that was sort of a way to bring a little tropical warmth and a nice, this is my, um, this is actually a, a decaf from my Nespresso machine. And I'm here with my hot cup of tea and it's 18 inches of snow so far in Minnesota. So I'm just cuddling my tea. Oh, Kristen, I, I need lots of advice from you about how to um, to learn to live in the snow. So my son and I are taking a big journey to Boise, Idaho, and we're going to go travel later this week. And I really hope there's not a lot of snow along the journey because he's got a Honda a Civic and it's just not a very good car to be going in the snow. But we'll see. Hopefully the journey and from Mississippi to Boise is, you know, 2000 miles. So it's not a short journey. This is going to be an interesting story in retrospect. I can tell, Stuart. We look forward to hearing about it. Yeah. So as we're recording this episode, we're heading into the holidays, and we hope that when this episode comes out, everyone's had a great holiday. This is our initial episode of the Pharmacy Fika podcast, and each episode we're going to talk a little bit about something that's kind of weighing on our minds, that's something, an issue that we're trying to deal with in our practice as educators and or something that's happening in academia that we think is of general interest to most folks. And the topic I brought to this conversation today is about educational handoffs and handovers. And I think there's a slight difference between these two, which we'll kind of get into, but this really um, emerged from me from my frustration with working with advisees. So the University of Mississippi has come pretty strict rules because of FERPA of sharing student information with educators unless there's a need to know. And, and, and that makes sense. But for some reason, they don't believe advisors need to know. <laughs> and so advisors are not privy to student of grades. They're not even privy to what courses they've registered for. They're not privy to their transcript. 
And I find this very limiting. You know, a student, of course, can share it with me, but they typically don't unless I really push them to share the information with me. And particularly students who are not doing well in school, they're very reluctant to share this kind of information with me. So that's where the frustration first started. But then I discovered an article in Academic Medicine, which talked a little bit about handovers, which handovers are when information about student performance is handed over from one program to another. So going from med school into residency, they kind of delineate student performance issues beyond a transcript. A handoff, as they define it, is when two educators within the same program are communicating to each other. So they're handing off the student from one to another uh, within the program. So it could be two preceptors in a, a degree program. Um, or it could be two educators talking about student performance in labs or didactic instruction, something along those lines. So um, one of the things that I wanted to ask you all is, you know, do you have the same difficulties, same issues occurring for each of you? Uh, I don't know. Uh, let's start with Tina. I don't know, you know, if you share and have some of the same problems. Yeah, you know, I've been um, curious about this for quite some time, Stuart. I um um, some of you may know I recently moved back from Melbourne, Australia. And when I was in Melbourne and my family's in Mississippi, I can remember being very grateful for the patient privacy laws, HIPAA, um, but also glad that my parents were in a small town where people tended, the community did come out and rally around them. So there were a couple of times where my parents were unwell and community members did give me a little bit of a tip off. So I could check in on them. And I, I kind of think about this handoff issue um, in education as running parallel to the patient privacy issue in clinical care. So in pharmacy practice, we're doing everything we can. Well, even, even in water health care to connect the dots so that, you know, for example, a patient doesn't come in and have to redo their med list every single time and start completely over with every health issue and concern that they have. And we're even using technology to connect some of those things. But yet in education, we really have um, historically valued this idea that um, each educator has a different relationship um, with the student and should develop that from beginning to end, soup to nuts, as they say. Um, and, it, it, you know, each time a relationship starts and ends. I, I personally feel like um, we can better support our students, but I was really interested in some of the studies that you shared, Stuart. So, Tina, what you said about uh, your parents kind of echoes my thoughts. So, I've you know, struggled with this some, and, you know, there are really good reasons for having FERPA laws and HIPAA laws. But as you just kind of illustrated, there are times when it gets in the way of best interest and not all the time, but some of the times. And when I get frustrated is when there are students that I probably could have helped throughout the semester in my class had I known just a little bit of information. I don't need to know about every student and all their grades and how they did, but just a little bit if I had known that this was going on or if they struggled with a certain thing, that that is something I could have stepped in and maybe alleviated a lot of their problems and issues. 
Yeah, and maybe even getting that information earlier, you, you probably figured it out as the semester went along, but then you're out of time. <laughs> yeah, I either figured it out at the end or at the end of the semester when we're doing academics performance, and then all of the information comes out at that point in time. It's like, well, if I would have known that, I could have probably helped them in my class, uh, and probably some of the other structures could have too. And that doesn't happen all the time. It's not like we have dozens of students that way, but it's the handful of students that sometimes, um, yeah, the laws kind of get in the way. Yeah. Kristen, I don't know if you've had similar experiences. Well, this conversation is just making me think about the students and the position we're putting the students in. And, you know, if, if they're not doing well, if they're struggling with something, asking them to then come forward with it because our system's don't allow us to reach out, don't allow us to know what's what's going on with them. Um, it just seems like it's adding burden on top of burden in some circumstances. Yeah. And, and unfortunately, the students who are not doing well because of both shame and also students who don't have good self-awareness often are the ones who are least likely to seek help, right? And so, and help-seeking behavior is often, is a great behavior, but it's often the students who are doing really well that seek help, not the students who are not doing very well, right? Because they just don't have a good insight about the value of help and also about their own, you know, performance. They just don't see it until it's too late, right? So it is, it is, um, it is asking a lot for a student to become self-aware enough to seek that help. Um so in the experiential environment, I think this is particularly relevant because you can imagine two preceptors being in the same program together, the same degree program, or maybe even in the same institution, two people working in a large academic health science center. And you have a student who maybe has some performance issues. Um, maybe they have difficult time collecting a med history, for example. Maybe they do a lot of other great things, but that's something they need more practice on. And and so they want to hand off to the next preceptor and let them know about this performance issue, about more practice. But um, we don't allow that, at least not in our program. And I don't know if you do in your programs. I'm sure it goes on, meaning that the behind the scenes informally, there's probably some of that happens. Um, but we're warned against doing that sort of thing, not um, biasing the next preceptor in terms of our own impressions of the student performance and allowing that preceptor to make up their own mind and to see for themselves um, what the student performance issues are. I don't, I don't know if you all believe, you know, what's happening behind the scenes. Is there a lot of this going on behind the scenes, even though it's not, it's frowned upon? I won't say it's illegal because I don't think that it is, but certainly within a program, um, but it's not condoned or supported or systematically enabled. My thoughts are it's going on maybe in residency, not so much in the student PharmD program, maybe a little bit, but probably not so much, just because of numbers. Yeah. Well, that, and I don't think FERPA applies to residency. So that's another reason. <laughs> right. It, it's interesting, though. Um, are we really afraid of a, a theoretical risk or is it an actual risk? 
And, you know, I was, I thought it was interesting, Stuart, um, you know, some, a little bit of conflicting information in some of the um, references that you shared with us. But, um, you know, I think almost everything, right, we're looking at risk benefit. We're looking at, you know, the risk to the student versus the potential benefit to them to be supported. And I, I wonder if there was, you know, something in particular, um, I think, Dory paper in academic medicine um, that looked at, you know, having, having, having instructors get information ahead of time and then evaluating objectively videos. And I found that quite, you know, um, I, I hate to let us be so fearful that we, so fearful of risk that we're not able to do the right thing. Or we have to seek out informal ways to do the right thing, which it sounds like some people do. Um, and, and you know, that really takes away, we want students to be more self-aware as well, but it takes away perhaps even from some of their development for us to, mm -hmm. to use those informal ways. Yeah. So, I mean, and I'm going to direct this question really to Kristen, because I, I think that you probably have some insight into this. So when are appropriate times to share information between instructors? And, I, and, and somehow I don't feel like it should only be when a student is struggling, right? It shouldn't be limited to that. But I think that's when we informally do it, right? We don't go around telling people about how great someone is doing, you know, but we, we feel a need to say, hey, this student's had some difficulties. But somehow that is creating a certain amount of bias. Like, I'm only going to share things when bad things happen, right? Um, so when do, you, when do you think are the appropriate times? Yeah, and I think that's a really tough question. Um, this this topic has me really thinking about systems. You know, what what systems do we have in place and not have in place? And um, you know, I, I think we all have a personal tolerance of the point at which we become so concerned that we will take matters into our own hands, even if there's not a system in place, and you know, we'll swoop in and try and and help that student that's really it's really struggling, but are we waiting so long, you know, that, that, and they're so far into their downward spiral potentially, you know, that it becomes hard to, to recover. And so I know it, that doesn't answer your, your question, Stuart. Um, you know, I, I worry about our systems and like Tina, how, how do we come to terms as an academy with, um, or even within a school with where, we want to step in under what circumstances? And I think that's the that's the kind of question that requires some dialogue and debate. And I didn't see so much in the in the literature that we that we looked at. People were talking about being for and against and being proponents and opponents. And I think we often do, you know, take an issue like this and fall into camps. But this is we don't want to fall into camps. We want to find find the space where we can coexist and do good for our students. And that, that takes a lot of dialogue and debate. Yeah. Well, and I hope, you know, some people generate some evidence around this because the one article, only the one article that I saw where they empirically tested whether it would create certain biases um, was the Dory article in academic medicine. And I think we need more evidence like that. Like under what circumstances is it really helpful? And then how do you systematically do it? So... Well, Stuart, I just wanted to add one more thing, which was um, I, when I was in, uh, in ninth, 
no, 2005, I moved to the UK and was there for about four years. And one of my first projects, we were actually interviewing patients about electronic health records. And we actually stopped the interviews early because so many of the people we interviewed actually thought the things were already connected anyway. Like we were saying, how would you feel if a pharmacist had access to your, they were like, they don't have access. Oh my gosh, that's not safe. And I wonder from a student perspective, if you think about it, they may be like, well, wait, Jeff, you know, I struggled last semester. Um, why, why didn't you know that I was struggling and that why didn't you try to help me? They may th think the system is slightly more connected than it is and not serving them well. You know? Yeah, yeah, that may be very true. So there's a good, you know, research study there, Tina, is just getting, you know, what are students' observations of what they think is actually happening and what they would prefer. I mean, for all we know, they would profoundly prefer that we share information. I mean, we don't know that. Maybe none of them do. Maybe they said, nope, I don't want anybody to share, but it's uh, a good, it's a good point. I also wonder about how our educational system would change if we could figure this out. If we could master it somehow, I think about like the efficiency of our systems. And we all know what it's like to receive someone on rotation and to spend several weeks trying to figure out what's going on with them. And it's just about the time that they leave that we realize that there's a problem. Had we known earlier, we could have made that educational process so much smoother and so much more rewarding for everyone. And so I wonder, you know, this our lack of action in addressing this issue, you know, leaves us in a situation where it's hard to do things that we know are really important, like deliberative practice. Mm -hmm. And how is it that you can focus in on, on the things that the student is weaker on and give them adequate practice and adequate feedback so that they can address those issues when we don't know what the issues are? Yeah. And, and, and the other way to think about this too is a student maybe excelling, right? And they're really great at something already. And not to communicate that to the next person in line, like this student is ready for the next step. Don't make them go back and do these, you know, these basic things again. You know, I think of IPPEs, for example, and a student's really great at a med history already or really great at interviewing patients or really has dynamic rapport with people that they're just meeting you know, communicating that to the next preceptor in line allows that preceptor to maybe envision some new things beyond what they would normally require a student to do, right? So so it, it, it not only potentially helps the student who's struggling, but it could help those students who already are, you know, mastered stuff to go on to new stuff that, that they wouldn't ordinarily get to do. What this conversation has kind of reminded me of is some of the conversations that we've had about personalized learning and some of the, the pie in the sky of, you know, if every student could come in and go at their own pace and the students who know stuff can speed right through and that, who says they need to be in pharmacy school for four years, if they can learn it all in two and a half, why are we keeping them here for a year and a half? And maybe some students need a little bit longer. And, you know, th those are always those just what if high philosophical things. They also come back down, I hear this a lot, and it's technology-based. 
to be able to do personalized learning, you can't do it efficiently. 140 students of people, you have to have that technology and collecting that data. And I've, you know, set in various vendor demonstrations of that, that are talking about these exact same things as if, if you use our system, we collect all this information and you as instructor can see who's struggling and who's behind and who's spending time and who's disengaged and who's not. And, you know, as you probably know, none of those, you know, never come to broad fruition or acceptance or adoption for, for various reasons, but it's still there. I mean, the thought is still there that it's a really, you know, if we could, if we could make it happen, happen, like Kristen said. Um, So I guess, you know, what do we, we all kind of agree more information sharing probably would be helpful. The question is how, you know, what would be the mechanism for doing that and what kinds of information? And one thought that I had was, you know, many schools are adopting EPAs as a way of rating students and, and often they're not used for the student's grade. It's just used for feedback to the student about this is where my level of entrustment was for you during this experience. Could that information be automatically forwarded and shared between that student's next preceptors, or, or at least the next preceptor in line, saying, here's my handoff, here was my rating, so where I think the student's capabilities are in these areas. And would that be useful information? Would it bias? Um, I, I don't think so. I mean, it, I, I think every preceptor is going to formulate their own opinions about a, a student based on those first few days about what they're observing about them. But it could help, I think, to kind of set things up, what I need to pay attention to, what I need to practice more with the student. Um, I don't know. What are your thoughts on that? I mean, is that what you think is a reasonable structure? And every student gets it. So it's not just the students who are struggling. Every student, the information shared. So we're not just picking out the poor performers, right? Stuart, I think, I mean, not to make another clinical analogy, but I, I can remember when I moved back to the U.S. from the U.K., um, my doctor's office was walking distance to my house and I used to always get my labs before I went to the doctor. And she would say, she was lovely. She would go, that's so great. You get your thyroid levels done before the visit so we can adjust them during the visit. And I was like, oh, I thought that was what I was supposed to do. I I wasn't being that clever, but that way we can use our time together very effectively. Not you have to call me back afterwards and say, I'm changing your dose based on your, your, your thyroid levels. But that was something um, my colleagues down at Monash University in Australia, sort of an emerging area of EPAs. We had a a tool called Comet, Curriculum Outcomes Mapping and ePortfolio Tool. And we really encouraged the students to take those EPA report from one placement, one rotation. And it's a slightly different system than in the U.S., but that their report, they could share that in their introductory conversation with that with their next preceptor. So they, they had that information. And it wasn't just where they were, 2A, it was where the class was. You know, I'm expected to be at 2A and I'm at 2A. Now, it was very interesting because the students, um, quite frankly, it was a new course that no one had ever... They didn't have anybody to ask about this, and they would mostly do it. The preceptors were a little like, it was sort of like my my doctor, my GP, who was asking me about my thyroid levels. They were like, oh, wow, you're coming into this conversation with some data for me. 
I I'm not really we didn't necessarily did the do the best job of preparing them for receiving that, but um, I think in the end they were they did find that valuable. Yeah, but it was up to the student to share it. It was up to the student, and it was a it, um, you know many people in the U.S. are using the same. Um, system for their experiential um it has its pluses and minuses uh but the the student could also share a link a time delimited link to that report via email they could say i'm giving you access to this for, for during my rotation and then i'll remove access afterwards so they did have some autonomy about it, but it was student driven you're right yeah and what I worry about that kind of system where the student makes the decision is exactly what we have here for my advising system. You know, the students who least need the handoff are the ones who are sharing. And the, and the students who probably would most benefit from the handoff are reluctant to share because they don't want to reveal, you know, something negative about themselves. Um, which is very unfortunate because, you know, we learn most from where the things that we're struggling. That's where we need to spend our time and energy. And if someone could coach us through it, uh, we would benefit the most. So, so I'm going to play devil's advocate for just a little bit on reasons maybe not to do this. And I think it kind of comes out in some of the articles or some of the concerns. And this is a lot of the things I've been reading lately uh, from both and maybe really an educational, but actually even more from a kind of business and organizational perspective is that as humans, we are really, really not good at evaluating others' performance and abilities. And I didn't really realize it that we were that bad until recently and that the evaluations vary. And so one of the examples that I recently read is someone's evaluation of their performance may actually be uh, more indicative of the evaluator than it is of the actual learner or, uh, or worker. And so, you know, and, and I do know that was some of the concerns of people have biases. And, you know, if I'm really strict I could pass someone on and give this information over that make you think that this student is not very good, where it's just I have, I'm just overly um, critical of performance. Or vice versa. <laughs> or vice versa, right. So I could, I could give you a mistaken impression that this student is, you know, fantastic and ready for anything because my bar is fairly low like you know i you know i i want to be a nice person or or you know the skills that are needed in my setting perhaps are not as um rigorous you know or, or as challenging and you're about to go off into a different setting where i might leave you with a false impression that the student's really ready for anything <laughs> so right I think that's a really good point, and I've seen it play out in the classroom, in simulation activities, as well as in the experiential side. Some people are great teachers and great evaluators, and some are great at only one of those. Not that, not that we can't learn to be better, and that was actually one of the recommendations, I think, from the um, Morgan article in academic medicine, which, you know, they had sort of five recommendations for handover, not necessarily handoff but the standardized format. And, you know, I think medicine has long had things like Dean's letters, et cetera, that are very prescriptive. Mm -hmm. I worry that 
standardized format will meet the needs of no one versus having standards and how we do it. And I, you know, I want to go back to Jeff talking about sort of time variable instruction and maybe the selling point is it is for some people they could accelerate if we, if we got better at this. And then that would maybe give us as educators more time to spend to support people who, who need that extra support. Um, and, you know, not to drop names, but I, I, I always think about this 2018 Macy Foundation report about competency-based time variable health professions education. And sometimes we don't have pharmacy leaders who are at the table for the conversation. We're having to, you know, take, take, take our lead from medicine and nursing, et cetera. But in that case, we actually had a former, somebody who's now, uh, who was dean of a school of pharmacy at that table. And um, I, I wonder if we weren't able to advance some of that just because as tailored as we, the more tailored may be the more expensive the instructional model is. And that's the fear. That's, you know, if we have two, if we, if we treat everybody the same, we, we can afford to do this, um, even though it might not be meeting, you know, most of the need. And, um, you know, I, I do want to be realistic about that. Um, well, you've mentioned the Morgan article a few times, and I think it's a, actually it's a useful one, which we'll post with the show notes, at least a link to it, these couple of academic medicine articles that we've talked about. Um, and in it, they, they do talk about, in, at least in a handover, where one program is handing over a student or a resident to another program, what kinds of information would be um, communicated. And one is being clear about uh, why you're communicating, why you're doing a handover, why you're communicating that. And I think any school or any of us thinking about it, you know, why, why are we doing it? So being clear about the purpose, that it would be um, a cyclic process so that it would happen at regular intervals and it wouldn't just be when you think there's a problem, right? You do it for everybody, that it's structured. Now they are recommending that it is learner-driven and learner-owned. Um, and and I think that may be driven by the laws um, or, you know, I, I'm not sure. Um, so I have some concerns about that only because I find that learners often, as I say, don't have insight and often feel shame and don't want to move it forward. But then we would have to be much better about receiving that information too. And then the, the infrastructure, they talk a little bit about infrastructure and how technology can help with communicating this information in systematic ways. So I think it's a great article. I hope people will read it and maybe consider it as institutions. But I think this does lend itself to some really great scholarly work here that somebody could take forward and, and do some things around to see if, in fact, communicating this information does create certain kinds of bias and how it helps students' performance in some ways. I love the idea of some pharmacy-focused study in this area. I mean, I think it would be it would add greatly to even resource decisions that we have to make. Um, as well as share widely, perhaps with programs worldwide who aren't as well resourced as they um, tend to be in the U.S. Any final thoughts, Kristen or Jeff? Yeah, I think I have. I have one observation. I've I've been sitting here pondering about our reluctance to move into this this space and. 
um, thinking about, you know, who we are as a profession and who we are in our colleges and our schools. And I can't help but wonder if, you know, our risk aversity, which kind of comes with the job and our our charge to be safe in, in the profession, to, to be that part of the healthcare system when it comes to medication use, if that isn't kind of bleeding over into our care of, of students, that risk aversity, and it's causing us to, to be reluctant and to not step forward and to figure these, these things out. And I, I can't help but wonder if somewhere down the road, years from now, somebody won't look back and say, what do you mean they didn't follow up on, on students and pass forward information? That, that just seems, why, why would you not do that? You know, you're supposed to be caring for these students and someone might really question where we've been or where we are right now. I love it. It's good, Kristen. Well, my final thought is like, this has been really good. I think for us as an academy to get better and improve, we've got to have, have these conversations and it just, we, we don't have venues for these conversations very often. So hopefully someone will listen to this and take it a little further, talk about it a little bit more, conduct some research and, and get us moving get us moving farther because I don't have the answers. I'll just say right now, I don't have it. And I mean, no no pressure on Stuart, but um, I'd love to see our academic organizations, you know, spark more discussion about this and perhaps even support, you know, be able to support some research in this area. Well, certainly AACP's one of their strategic agendas is innovation and pharmacy education. And I think this falls within that space. And if we do go to a competency-based education, this I think this will be a critical element. I mean, I don't know how you do competency-based education well without some personalization. And I think personalization requires communication, better communication between preceptors and educators. So Well, this has been a terrific conversation for episode one of the Pharmacy Fika. Looking forward to our next episode. I think we're going to be talking about grades and the shortcomings of those. So we look forward to Jeff leading that conversation. So it sounds like... Sounds like you're handing over to Jeff, Stuart. (laughs) That's right. I'm handing over to Jeff. All right. Thanks very much. Take care, everybody. Thanks for listening to Pharmacy Fika, a podcast where we enjoy coffee and conversations. If you liked this episode, please pass it along to a colleague and be sure to rate us. You can share your reactions on Twitter at Pharmacy Fika, but please be kind. This is a safe space. Got a question or want to suggest a topic for a future episode? Leave us a voice message at speakpipe.com slash Pharmacy Fika. Bye for now. Namaste. Das Vidanya. Au revoir. Thank you.